Dozens of people have been killed in a suicide bomb attack in a security compound in the northwestern Pakistani city of Peshawar, according to governmental authorities. Police official Sadiq Khan, a police official, stated that the attacker blew himself up while among the worshippers. Authorities said that more than 90% of the casualties themselves were police officials. Sarbakov Mohammed, a commander for the Pakistani Taliban, also known as the TTP, within the Jamaat al-Hadrar faction, initially claimed responsibility for the attack on Twitter. However, mainline TTP spokesperson Mohammed Khorasani distanced the group from the bombing itself, saying it was not its policy to target mosques, seminaries, or religious places. Which brings us to the question of how we got here and what may happen next. From Seton Hall University, this is The Global Current. I am your host, Drew Starbuck. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation today, our analyst is Madeline Field. Hi, Maddie. Hi, Drew. And focusing on the international aspect today is Shane Simmons. Hey, Shane. Hey, Drew. Thank you both for coming on the show tonight. Thanks for having us. Thank you. All right, I just want to get into introducing the event itself for us and the basics to our listeners out there. So I would like to ask, what was the basis for this attack? And either of you can start off. Mm-hmm. Of course. So the attack took place on January 30th in Peshawar, as you mentioned, which is the northwest capital city of the province, Khyber Pakhtunwan. So the TTP, which is the Taliban in Pakistan, have a strong presence there, and it's a site of frequent attacks. So the bombing itself happened in a mosque within a walled compound in a high security zone that was surrounded by other government buildings. In the bombing, 74 people were killed, and it also wounded 150 more people. The bombing took place in a mosque with about 300 people, so there was a high casualty rate. So the TTP initially claimed responsibility. Commander Sarbakov Mahmand said that, you know, it was their attack. However, hours later, their spokesman, Mohammed Kursani, that Drew mentioned earlier, said that it wasn't TTP policy to target mosques and other religious places, and that those who did would face punishment. He did not provide justification for why Mohammed had claimed responsibility. So there was a domestic response within Pakistan. Pakistan PM Shabazz Sharif said that this is no less than an attack on Pakistan. And it came just days after, in January, the TTP shot and killed two intelligence officers, one being the director of the counterterrorism wing of their spy agency, which is the Inter-Services Intelligence. And I want to get in deeper to some of the points you brought up, Maddie. Uh, You mentioned the differences of the spokesperson said this, and then later backing the responsibility of the attack was the commander, and then the spokesperson said the TTP was not responsible. Do you think that this attack revealed divisions within the TTP and this potential significance of this or repercussions? I think that we can definitely get into the political ramifications of it later, but I think it reflects uh, a willingness of the TTP to kind of play by the government's rules in some regards, and on the other hand, a desire within kind of the, the TTP to not play by the government's rules. I think that's true, Maddie, and we we will get into that later, as you stated, especially with the government treaties between the TTP and the Pakistani government and the history between mm-hmm. the two. I also want to ask you both of what was the overall damage of this attack, and was this a solitary event? Um, I think I could speak to that. I do not believe that it was a solitary event, although it did seem to be one that stood out by itself. 
they actually gave updated numbers on the 31st, the day after it happened, and the death toll rose to about 100 with 225 wounded. And it garnered like the title of a, a national security crisis, which I think is, is very important in noting that uh, it's not necessarily a recurring event, but it is prevalent. Yeah. As Shane was saying, it takes place kind of amid this uptick in terrorism. In the last four years, incidents have doubled, particularly from 2020 to 2022, um, especially as the U.S. campaign of drone strikes ended. So there's been a lot of chatter as to why, but the feeling is that the TTP is taking advantage of the strained relationships between the Pakistani government and inhabitants of the formal federally administered tribal areas, which again we'll get into later. Um, and it also takes place kind of amid the resurgence of the Taliban in Afghanistan. Yeah. So while this is an attack that's noted for its brutality, I don't think that it's a singular event. Yeah. So as part of an ongoing trend, you think of more violence and more escalations and more attacks, as you both said, Shane and Maddie, but uh, the severeness of the attack itself is what garnered such attention. Yes. Right. Moving on into, I want to get into an explanation and a deeper look at what the background of the TTP or the Taliban in Pakistan is for our listeners there and just ask how were they formed and uh, what influence they've had on Pakistani politics to up to this point. Yeah, of course. So I think um, we should start with what the TTP stands for. It stands for the Tariqa Taliban Pakistan um, and it was formed in 2007 amidst a unification of existing militant networks that wanted to fundamentally oppose the Pakistani military. So it is the largest of the terror groups in Pakistan and has particularly revitalized efforts in the wake of the insurgency in Afghanistan. So the UN sanctions, it's it, rather, it's about 3,000 to 4,000 fighters deep um, and most of their fighters are concentrated in the east and southeast region of the Afghan-Pakistani border, which is um, Peshawar is in the northwest corner, I believe. Um, and it has revitalized, as we mentioned earlier, amidst the Afghan crisis. The UN sanctions monitoring team that examined the Afghan situation found that the TTP has, quote, arguably benefited the most of all the foreign extremist groups in Afghanistan from the Taliban tank over. They are notably distinct from the Afghan Taliban. Um, they kind of, there are some differences in religious ideology, um, but the UN believes that Afghanistan is, hiring, is hiding some of these commanders um, and that they're then able to launch attacks, especially in Kabul. So since then, the TTP has been very successful in launching a series of attacks in Pakistan. Um, they're known for attempting to assassinate Malala, uh, failed bombing in Times Square in, I think, the mid-2000s, and then the Peshawar school massacre, which I believe killed around 150 kids. After that massacre, um, there was an effort by the government to push them out of the region, but they have since researched. And I want to get into uh, the connections you delved into, Maddie, a little bit of the significance of the TTP's actions, reflecting on both the Afghan Taliban government that has been set up in the aftermath of the U.S.'s withdrawal from Afghanistan, especially since it was reported that they're harboring um, leaders from the TTP. Do you want to get into that any at all, Shane? Any connections between, like, the Afghan Taliban and the 
the TTP within Pakistan as well. You can just give us the basics because I know we'll try and get into that yeah, later. Absolutely. I know that the Afghan Taliban and the TTP, they, although are two separate groups, they are allied to some degree. And since the withdrawal of U.S. troops, uh, U.S. and NATO troops, the U.N. Security Council had said that the TTP has arguably benefited the most of all foreign extremist groups in Afghanistan from the Taliban takeover. So originally the TTP uh, had remained pretty quiet up until after the Afghan Taliban had sort of taken over and then they were able to finally establish themselves in Pakistan and, and start their, not reign, but uh, step up in their activities. Right, to a start building momentum. And, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I also want to, you mentioned a point earlier of the number of members within the group as well and how they operate both within Pakistan and across the Afghanistan border. Is this organization, the TTP, not only limited to Afghan or Pakistani members? Mm -hmm. um, I believe that it's primarily Pakistani. I mean, there's, su there's such a wide variety of terror groups in the region, Drew, that uh, there's plenty to pick from um, in terms of people from other countries joining. So I think because the group primarily arose out of kind of this chagrin with the Pakistani military, it's primarily, you know, Pakistani members. Um, but it does draw, I, I believe, occasionally from the Afghan Taliban. There has not been this kind of wide surge of troops from Pakistan to Afghanistan to kind of fight for the Taliban that people had feared, luckily. Um, but I, I do believe that it's kind of a fluid membership. And then I, I think that leads into the question, Maddie, of what overall threat does the TTP present to the Pakistani government? And would that threat potentially extend beyond the borders of Pakistan, as you elucidated earlier, of um, fighters crossing borders and lending their support, whether that be in Afghanistan or in Pakistan? Um, where would you both rate that threat, so to speak? Uh, Shane, do you want to kick it off? Yeah, I would definitely consider it as a rising threat. I don't know if, if it's um, necessarily garnered a like an urgency where it needs to be immediately attended to but I, I do think that the TTP definitely uh, is gaining favor in in other countries I, they've recruited uh, Chechens Arabs and Uzbek terrorists and you know although it is smaller now I, I think that that there is a sense of urgency that needs to be uh, addressed do you have anything to add on to that Maddie yeah, I would characterize it as pretty much a grave threat to the state of Pakistan, really. The TTP has historically taken advantage of this strained relationship, in particular between the Pakistani government, the military, and then, as I mentioned earlier, the inhabitants of the former federally administered tribal areas, which also known as the FTA. So their ability to kind of seize onto this grave discontent in the area, um, whether it be these military operations, the arbitrary detentions from the Pakistani military, low, it's low investment from the Pakistani state, and then capitalize on the sense of exclusion from this mainstream Pakistani politics, I think have alienated a lot of people. Um, I think their ability to bounce back from all the military assaults that have previously driven them out is incredibly concerning. Um, and now that the Pakistan, or now that the Taliban are ready, rising again in Afghanistan, I think that the probability that they are able to communicate and work together is high. 
I also think it's concerning that the they have been fairly open to groups like Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda has been operating in their territory. They've been operating in the FTA. And because of that, they might be able, Al-Qaeda might be able to conduct kind of these external attacks on Afghanistan from Pakistan. So not only is it a threat to the Pakistani state, but it, it allows kind of these groups to proliferate that then destabilize its neighbor, kind of causing the economic issues and the border security crisis that we've seen before. So as Shane described, that it's a rising threat. But as you pointed out, Maddie, a rising threat can turn grave when there's been divisions within the government between the Pakistani government, its military, and the relationship with those tribal areas of which the TTP has been extending their influence. Yes. I, I think they managed to capitalize on just kind of overall dissent, religious fervor in ways that other groups um, have not proven as resilient. So I, I think that it it's a situation that requires, once again, intensive military effort. Mm -hmm. And I will get into like the previous truces and ceasefires between the governments and the TTP later, but I also want to get more of a look at the key players of these events going on right now. I'll turn to you, Shane, and just ask for like a general rundown of who are the key players in these events, some of these individuals, and just start off with, do you think it is the possible political repercussions of, on Islamabad and the Pakistani government for this attack? And where would you put or rate the domestic situation in Pakistan currently? Well, to start off with the, the key players, I, I wanted to start, I would say, uh, Kamran Bangesh. He was the secretary general of the opposition to the uh, TTP. Um, and he blamed the instability on the government of the prime minister, uh, Shabazz Sharif. Um, the government, uh, he had quoted, the government has failed to improve the economy and law and order situation, and it should resign to pave the way for snap parliamentary elections. I think what uh, he means by this, and what sort of raises eyebrows at, at the current situation in Pakistan is that uh, the TTP is not only, you know, a, a growing terrorist group, but it's uh, much like the Afghan um, Taliban is, is attempting to organize. And I think that the the Pakistani government is is starting to, to sweat a little, recognizing that because uh, the TTP is finally gaining a following where it, it can organize and, and become a government itself, um, that the uh, prime minister Shabazz Sharif should really address their their national security a bit more closely, knowing that this threat is impending. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned um, the threat of the TTP putting together their own state and things like that. Do you think um, the establishment of the Islamic Caliphate within Afghanistan by the Taliban uh, government there is an example that the TTP is actively trying to pursue within Pakistan? And if so, do you think they have the means to achieve that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think that because we know that it has happened uh, in a place like Afghanistan, it definitely leaves a blueprint for, I think, the TTP to, to follow um, in their footsteps. You know, again, it also involved, you know, U.S. and NATO troops having to withdraw just so that Afghanistan could, you know, create that, that government. And I, I think that with Pakistan currently not having any sort of uh, outside influence protecting them, I, I think they're definitely susceptible to it. 
Do you have anything to add on to that, Maddie? Um, I think that a lot of kind of these these issues stem from the demands of the TTP, which have not been realized um, in the way that they want to by the Pakistan government. So I'm going to jump into that, Drew. Um, so according to the CRS, the TTP seeks to defeat Pakistan's government and establish Sharia law in Khyber Pakhtunwan, which is the province in which this bombing took place. Um, so what they want is they want to expel Islamabad's influence, whether that be the military, whether that be kind of these government offices in these tribal areas, which I've mentioned before, um, and then the neighboring province. And they want to also expel coalition troops from Afghanistan. So obviously they've realized that goal. And then finally, and kind of most importantly, they've publicly said that the group seeks to establish an Islamic caliphate in Pakistan that would require the overthrow of the Pakistani government. So I think that that is kind of the, the crucial point here. They're a group that does not want anything but to destabilize the very state in which they operate out of. And they've capitalized on most of this and they've drawn most of their militants from these tribal areas. So kind of the tribal areas historically um, have had a very tense relationship with the Pakistani government. That is the reason for a lot of this discontent. So the tribal areas, roughly five million people, uh, very rural, with that share a border with Afghanistan on the northwest side of the country. So the FTA was not governed by Pakistan from 1947, when the state was created, until 2018, which was only five years ago. And up until that point, these militant groups like the TTP, like Al-Qaeda, um, like the Haqqani Network, were able to run free as law enforcement agencies were not allowed to operate in the region. So in 2007, Pakistan, amidst kind of a rise in, in tensions and deaths, as a result of TTP bombings and attacks, they launched military efforts to kind of retake the region from the TTP. And then 2018, finally, after finishing their long campaign, they integrated the region with Khyber Pakhtunwan, which is where Peshawar is, and then renamed it to the tribal districts. And while this was initially seen kind of as a beacon of hope for people in the region, many of whom are highly impoverished, it has not improved their status, and it's really angered militants. Um, which explains kind of this popular uprising against the Pakistani military, which is perceived by these people as extrajudicial and violent based off kind of killings that have happened in the past. I think you've elucidated several different points, Maddie, about how the TTP has risen to power and also taken advantage of uh, the disagreements between the Pakistani government and the tribal areas. Um, I also want to get into the point I was going to ask earlier of the different ceasefires, because it seems, as you elucidated, there's been a long history of conflict and then negotiations between the Pakistani government and the TTP. Um, do you see that as a possibility now, and what are the historical precedents from that? So I think the, the concept of a ceasefire is not new in Pakistan and with the TTP. Um, so most recently, there was a negotiated ceasefire in June, because the government, after Afghanistan fell, feared that it would ally with ISIS-K, which is Islamic State Khorasan, which would have been a disaster for the country. Uh, ISIS-K is particularly violent, and a partnership um, would have been bad, bad news. But they ended that ceasefire in November a few months ago. And there have been many, many ceasefires uh, kind of over this historical period. but. Unfortunately, it seems that deals between terrorist groups and the government have historically benefited the TTP and other terrorist groups. 
Uh, the TTP in the past has had militants released from prison. They've gained publicity kind of amidst these implicit acknowledgments of strength from the Pakistani government, and they've projected power over these regions, which I think is just fundamentally bad faith negotiating um, between them and the Pakistani government. And most recently, and perhaps most concerningly, given their desire to overthrow the Pakistani state and replace it with Caliphate, there have been rumors that certain members of the group have been, and the government, have been open to political reconciliation and inclusion of the TTP within their formal constitutional framework. So again, disaster for the state of Pakistan and just an enabling environment for these terrorists. Mm-hmm. I want to go take a turn from the domestic situation for just one moment and t- turn towards the reactions of other international nations. Uh, I'll come to you, Shane, of like, uh, when people think of Pakistan, of course, the neighboring relationship that they have with the nation of India is very important. So I'd like to ask you about the Taliban envoy in Afghanistan pushing to have its envoy in New Delhi and stepping up its request in light of these of the bombing attack. Uh, I want to get uh, your reaction to this and talking about these general repercussions for India. Absolutely. I do think that uh, the Taliban starting to reach out um, you know, as an organized government to places like, like India and specifically New Delhi where they plan to, um, they've been pressing for an envoy there. It obviously uh, draws some concern, but um, it seems to uh, come with some motive as well. The importance of the Afghan Taliban being able to obtain this uh, envoy would be its ability to be um, closer to the U.S., but uh, there are some potential positives for India to come from this uh, arrangement as well, um, allowing it to have operations in Afghanistan, uh, which it typically did not uh, was not able to have uh, prior to prior to Afghanistan uh, being taken over, um, and this would allow them to rid uh, some Afghanistan uh, anti-India terrorist groups uh, that have been residing there. Um, So I think that although there seems to be some mutually beneficial aspects of the envoy, um, I do think that it is very concerning that it's even being considered. Mm -hmm. I think those are important points you brought up, uh, Jane, of the importance of like India in this discussion, uh, especially with how much influence and how important the relationship is between Pakistan and India as two neighboring countries who have had a lot of tensions between each other and both are nuclear-armed powers to a certain extent. I want to dive quickly back into the domestic situation in Pakistan before we kind of summarize our thoughts. Um, Do you have anything to say, Maddie, about not just uh, the military impacts and the political impacts, but anything economically that could Mm -hmm. has come about? Absolutely. So let's touch or quickly touch on this. Um, So I think the bombing and the rise of the TTP kind of reflects the severe tension in Pakistan. There's a dichotomy between the desire to modernize by many people, but also the desire to remain true to Islamic fundamentalism, which the TTP um, kind of reflects. And uh, there's there's been a lot of issues in Pakistan. Recently, there's been floods that have killed almost 2,000 people, destroyed 2 million homes, a severe economic crisis. Currently, Pakistan is seeking $1.1 billion of a $6 billion bailout that's needed from the IMF, or else they're about to default. Um, there have been peaceful elections in the past, but they have proven that Pakistan's been vulnerable to the climate, to the government, and economic weaknesses. 
two-thirds of the country is youth and there's a complete lack of opportunity especially regarding education which has just kind of worsened this frustration and tensions so i read a quote from the atlantic council that said that pakistan is running out of countries to fall behind and i think that really speaks to the current domestic situation and kind of why the ttp has been able to capitalize on this yeah i want to do get into some final thoughts before we run out of time here from both of you maddie and shane and firstly just quickly summarizing two questions what i'm trying to what we're trying to get at, of what are the potential long-term impacts and effects of the bombing for the nation of Pakistan, which ties into what do you think will happen in the future? Uh, and the other question is, will this result in any great change for the TTP or the Taliban situation or standing in Afghanistan? Um, I'll come to you quickly first, Shay. I do think that uh, it is very important that Af- um, Pakistan uh, does not treat this situation lightly and that they um, definitely need to address their national security moving forward if this, uh, if the TTP continues to rise uh, and grow as a problem. Um, yeah, piggybacking off of that, I think that this further proves that terrorist groups are truly the people that are ruling this country. The political elites in Pakistan are neglecting the needs of the real people. And for me, um, it's a bit of kind of you get what you give. Um, in 2001, Pakistan had supported the attacks um, and then had later kind of took steps to curb religious extremism, uh, had cracked down on Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, but currently ISIS-K, AQIS, um, the Afghan Taliban, the Haqqani Network, several other Indian Kashmir-oriented militant groups, the Balakistan Liberation Army, anti-Shia militants, they're all in this country. Um, So I think more than anything, it proves that this should not be an excuse to envelope the TTP into the Pakistani government. They have taken steps to eradicate militants before in the mid-2000s, and it worked. So I think they should take similarly aggressive steps today. Yep, and uh, as you spoke before, Matty, both you and Shane, previous ceasefires have not worked, so it may require aggressive military action to truly root out um, the problem of the TTP. Yeah. And this has been a great discussion. Matty, Shane, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Joining me now to write on some other headlines this week is our news weaver, David Holtzman. Hi, David. Hi, Drew. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. So what headlines do you have for us this week? Well, it's been a big week in international news. There was a major earthquake in Turkey and Syria. President Zelensky toured Europe. The Moldovan prime minister resigned. And the Pentagon added some context to China's balloon surveillance program. Some very important stories to cover then. Let's start with the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. Well, a 7.8 magnitude earthquake struck southern Turkey and Syria on Monday in what Turkish President Recep Erdogan called the disaster of the century. The devastation was massive as the quake leveled entire towns near its epicenter, and the death toll continues to rise by the thousands as recovery efforts proceed. Turkey's Disaster Management Agency believes over 110,000 rescue personnel are assisting on the ground. The death toll stands above 40,000 and is likely to rise. And we can only hope that the assistance is getting to the people of Turkey and Syria that desperately need it. Um, And uh, you mentioned Ukraine. Yes, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky went on a two-day tour of European capitals this week, advocating for more resources to fight the war with Russia. Speaking in Brussels, Zelensky repeated his request for EU membership, arguing, quote, a Ukraine that is winning is going to be a member of the European Union. Responding to the request, EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen remarked that there is no rigid timeline to process membership requests. Uh, and it's clear that President Zelensky continues to travel and encourage for successfully foreign aid for his country during their struggle against the Russian government. 
Uh, you also mentioned the uh, prime minister's resignation in Moldova. Yes, uh, Moldova's pro-Western prime minister, Natalia Gavrilita, unexpectedly resigned on Friday. Gavrilita came under enormous pressure following an inflation crisis, an energy shortage, and errant Russian missiles that, together, sparked popular protests and discontent. Russia's worked in recent months to limit the natural gas supply to the Eastern European country and has been upset with its pro-Western tilt. Moldova's foreign minister wrote off the resignation, though, calling it just a normal reshuffle of the government. Mm -hmm. And it's clear that the consequences of the Russo-Ukrainian war have immense repercussions for nations such as Moldova. Uh, and you mentioned the final story of the Pentagon spokesperson elaborating about the Chinese air balloon program. Yes. Uh, giving a news conference on Wednesday, Pentagon spokesman Patrick Ryder stated that the spy balloon the United States shot down over Myrtle Beach a week and a half ago was part of a larger surveillance program the Chinese government has in place worldwide. He alleged the program spans five continents and focuses on U.S. military bases and other sensitive sites around the world. China claims the balloon was part of a weather and climate data collection program. Thank you very much for coming on, David. Thank you for having me, Drew. Now that is all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew, executive producer Jasmine DeLeon, associate producers Eric Bunce and Hamza Khan, technical producers Andrew Rukulia and Bobby Kyle, and of course, your host, Drew Starbuck. The Global Current is brought to you by Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you.